Hello and welcome to Sitcom Geeks. I'm James Carey. And I'm Dave Cohen. And we are joined by Fergus Craig. I've just said your name straight out there, Fergus. Um, Fergus was in uh, 33 many years ago when I did a Radio 4 sitcom. A writer, performer, formerly one half of Colin and Fergus, and then uh, turned sitcom writer Martin Fishback has just been on um, BBC Two. And also he's written a book. Um, and there's a persona coming out here. We've got lots to talk about, Fergus. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. It's brilliant that um, I just what I love you. I love what you're doing. I love how you've sort of spoken this character into existence. And we'll get there in a moment. But we normally start by asking our guests what comedies they were watching cross-legged on the floor um, amidst the hubbub of family when we all watched way too much television. Um, I know I did. I'm the youngest at four. So my parents had given up policing tv by the time i was on the scene what was it for you fergus what were you watching what were you liking um so i was born in 1980 and did watch a lot of tv i was trying to think about that today i think i sort of watched everything that was on <laughs> like all, yeah all comedy i think i watched pretty much i don't think i've revisited much of this at all but you know the big ones i remember are like faulty towers obviously Blackadder, obviously. Mr. Bean was really big for me. It was big. And yeah. I genuinely, I look back on Mr. Bean and I think it's really underrated. Yeah. What What was it about Mr. Bean that did it for you? Well, as a kid, I enjoyed it on like a purely in the way that you might expect a kid to enjoy it. But if I go back and watch, right, this might be controversial. But if I go was to go back and watch Blackadder now, which I have done every now and again, it doesn't really do anything for me beyond like the odd performance thing or whatever. Okay. But if I was to watch Mr. Bean now, I would still laugh out loud at Mr. Bean because I, I think it's really underrated. It's like it's his, the way comedy people would see it is like, well, that's when Rowan Axon sort of like, uh, I don't know, sold out or whatever. Is that what people say? I feel like people are snobby about Mr. Bean. Mm-hmm. It became a very big global phenomenon and then he made movies and it was like, OK, now he gets to buy his really expensive sports cars. Fair enough. But yeah, there was not great admiration for the craft of what, what was going I on think now, Mr. I think. Mr. stands the test of time better than Blackadder for me. That's, that's, it's, wow. that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a very different thing. And having having uh, revisited both for various reasons in in recent years, I mean, I I definitely agree with you. I didn't even. I mean, I didn't even. Uh, Mr. Bean didn't even show on my radar when it was when it was on. You know, it was kind of around the time I was performing a lot anyway, so I didn't watch much telly. But yeah, I mean that 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 is a it it is an incredible. Uh, visual feast, really, isn't it? It's, and and it's, it's so much, so intricate, really. And, uh, I mean, is that what you, you, you found, yeah? Yeah, well, it's just, number one, it's yeah. Rowan Atkinson, who is this phenomenal performer. And and two, it's like, uh, oh, this sounds so wanky, but it's like, it's like going back to Charlie Chaplin or like any sort of silent great. You know, we don't all yeah. sit and watch Charlie Chaplin every day, but people can have, that's that hasn't been forgotten about. That stands the test of time. People can say that is really good comedy, and it can still make people laugh out loud. Now, I don't know if people will laugh out loud at Blackadder or most sitcoms made now in a hundred years' time. 
but I think they might at Mr. Bean because it's just pure human jokes, yeah. right? Yeah, but there's the extra level. Now you, now we're digging into Mr. Bean, which is really interesting. I don't think I've really thought about this much. Mr. Bean isn't very nice. No. And that's really easy to forget because it, it, it would be easy to think of him as just an innocent and the world doesn't understand him and that he's got his own little concerns and stuff. But actually, he's 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 not just petty. Yes, he's, like, he's actually he's not like very a, generous, um, is he? Greedy child right he's got like very pure goals do, do you mean if there's if there's a nice piece of yeah i'm not referring to any specific episode but like if there's a cake in the room then he wants the cake and he will push someone out of the way to get the cake yeah do you know <laughs> like he will he will kill for that cake really i mean he yeah. he, he really has yeah. absolutely no you know so is this what, so in a way that Mr. Bean combines that performance and writing together. I mean, is that, is that where you began your, you know, writer performer kind of background or where did you start? Obviously as a nine year old or whatever, I wasn't sitting there thinking about like it, the idea that it was even written. Mm. But, um, yeah. I In, as a kid, before I was even a teenager, I placed a very high value on being funny and on funny people. I mean, I really, they were, they, all the people, of like the comic relief era people yeah. meant, a lot, meant a lot to me. So, you know, French and Saunders and Lenny Henry and all the Blackhead a lot and all that, they seemed, I think my because my parents liked them, and would that I valued that a lot as well. So yeah, they all I saw I saw it as a um admirable uh, admirable goal to be like those people. And it and my parents didn't sort of discourage me of that. Right. What did they encourage you? Was there a plan that you would go off and become a, a lawyer or an architect or something? No, no, they were like they were they were very, you know, I think they assumed I'd go to university. But they were sort of quite sort of bohemians, not the word, but they didn't have like solid career paths. So they could hardly say to me, you couldn't right. do what you wanted. Yeah. So, yeah, they were very encouraging. So at what point were you then thinking, oh, I, ca I can not just, I'd like to have a go at this. There's a, I, oh, I can do this and I'm going to do this. Um, or are, are we still, I mean, and there's a sense in which we're all thinking, I'm still getting away with it. Um, but, you know, were, were there moments where you particularly just think, yeah, that's that's kind of where I thought, oh, this is a thing and I can do this? I think from about, like, 10. Right. Know, it, wasn't, it wasn't to be a comedian necessarily, but, like, I was just a show-off and wanted to perform. <laughs> and, I, and I did write. Always, I always wrote, not with any, like, goal. But I think it's just what I, from as long as I can remember, it's just sort of what I was. And then I went to drama school with the intention of being like Daniel Day-Lewis. That's it. It's interesting you talk yeah. about people like French and Saunders uh, and, and um, Lenny Henry and that crowd. And, and you're actually, you know, they, they were probably the first 
the first generation of writer performers in the sense that what we what we think of now <clears throat> i mean obviously there were people before that like ronnie barker or whatever but there were it was the the, the fact that the t- tv was pretty well dominated by people who wrote and performed together so so for you i guess as you're getting a bit older you're not uh, you, you, you're not seeing the world as a writer or a performer. You're seeing the the, the, the comedic whole. Is that would you say that's true? Um, I suppose so. Yeah, I suppose I don't really know what my answer to that is. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. yeah. I just think it's very much when I was uh, my, my my era was very much you know there were the performers were the performers you know the 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 right. people you saw on telly doing jokes occasionally you had someone like dave allen but but mostly you had like the comedians on tv and then also you had the the sitcoms so you had the you know mm. the kind of carla lane and esmond and larby and uh uh that that going that that's that's the difference i was thinking yeah no i see exactly what you mean yeah i don't think i was really thinking about any of that as a kid i still liked proper sitcoms like one foot in the grave and all only Fools and Horses and all the American ones like Roseanne and the Golden Girls. And Golden Girls, yeah. Yeah, like just things that my parents liked. You know, those yeah. that I would be allowed to stay up to whenever that was on at like nine on a it's Friday. It's quite late, night. Golden Girls. I think that might even have been ten. I that was quite right. a um quite a late one. Uh but yeah. No, and there's something about that shared experience, isn't it, that's really um that's that's really it's not when you're a kid you don't just want to find something funny you want your parents to find it funny for the same reasons that you find it funny for me i remember making my parents watch uh a close shave or um the second one not a grand day out the the, the one where he ends up um with the penguin and the baddie and all that kind of stuff i i, I remember loving how much my parents thought it was just incredibly funny and that i'd yeah. found this and brought this to them and they weren't seeing anything that I wasn't seeing. We were all enjoying it on the same terms. And it was really, I don't know, that really mattered to me. Right. Um, it sounds we, like it's similar. Yeah. And then the first ones that I felt were mine were like Reeves and Mortimer. I've, my parents liked it. It wasn't, they were like, oh, what's this crap? <laughs> but I felt like I, it was for me. Do you know what I mean? My, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then you find your own stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, that would have been also the time that kind of Newman and Badil were, kind of rock stars weren't they as well coming through yeah but for whatever reason they were never a big deal for me i think it was reeves and mortimer yeah more of the sort of like i don't know newman and video felt i don't know a bit more sort of oxbridgey yeah and a bit snide and a bit well this is rubbish and that's rubbish yeah whereas you've got the yeah the Reeves and Mortimer which I personally didn't didn't go for if you'd have brought me a script of Reeves and Mortimer and I was a commissioner I would have said I don't understand why you've brought me this I, well, I literally... if you looked at a script yeah yeah I mean yeah. I don't but even watching it if I'd watched it I would say I don't where where's how does this what I don't I literally don't have the software in my head to 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 make it so I've, I've never literally found their stuff funny really <laughs> fair enough go on Go on, Dave. I was going to say, big big night out did for me. Um, was was kind of. I think it was. I think it was the fact that it was just so. Uh, it was just taking taking the Mickey out of crap TV to begin with, which was one thing. But then I think it was 
the relationship, which is, um, that there is reason yeah. why I'm mentioning this, the, the idea of this, uh, these two guys, and it very, it felt very reminiscent to me of, of kind of Morecambe and Wise, for instance, in, in terms of that kind of, the sort of, love between the two of them i mean obviously it couldn't be more different than more wise in other ways and i was wondering how you went from uh daniel day lewis wannabe to uh, to uh being in a double act and and, and how, how that how that sort of was that was reeves and mortimer your kind of gateway in that sense um not exactly although reeves and mortimer looked like the most fun thing in the world you could do do you know what I mean that they just looked like they were having fun and if you were you either were like James and mm. thought, well, you're not in on the joke. Yeah. And you probably find that quite annoying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. you, don't, you don't find it funny, then yeah. it, I, I imagine it's really annoying. Yeah. But um, it looked like the most fun thing in the world. But like, I went to drama school uh, and Colin, amongst some other people, Colin Holt was uh, there with me. And we just sort of accidentally became a double act. Um, and did some shows at drama school and then about a year after we left I had done some open mic stand-up and then Colin moved down to London and then we just decided to do some gigs together and then got assigned by Avalon and very quickly sort of taken up to Edinburgh and then that was just sort of that we were sort of comedians then so it wasn't oh. it wasn't a and now I will stop trying to be Daniel Day-Lewis and I yeah. will become a comedian yeah, like I'm getting a lot more traction. Yeah, <laughs> becoming yeah. a comedian. And when you said that was that, as it were, what what did that look like? I mean, how long were you sort of together doing stuff, and what you know? And again, uh, was this like, well, we're doing this for now, and we'll see how it goes. Well, by the time we were doing stuff, it was very much what we wanted to do. By the time we were actually getting work, we were working very hard on it. But we did um, Edinburgh in 2004. We did it 2004, five and six. And in 2005, we got a radio show on what is now Radio 4 Extra. It was called like BBC Seven at the time. Yeah. So we got a radio show where they just sort of let us do what we wanted, which was, uh, and paid us very little to do it. But, <laughs> but it was like, I look back on it and can't believe that we got that. And I think we were very, I was certainly was very uh, naive. To, to, I didn't realise it's how amazing it was to be 25 and mm. to be paid to make two series of a radio show for the BBC and yeah. do whatever you wanted. Yeah. I think radio was a bit different then in terms of there was less pressure on those slots. People didn't... BBC Seven was not somewhere, something that people were striving to be on. So it felt like they could take more risks, get more, you know, so, whereas now I think the competition is really hard I'm sure, to get yeah. on. Uh, so I know what you mean, because around about a similar time I was making sitcoms um, and just thinking, certainly now you look back and just think, blimey, they let me do quite a lot there. Um, yeah. When I didn't, I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, and when we were at the tail end of what would have been, I guess, like, a real era at BBC Radio where people came in to write. Right. Because we were too poor. To, we didn't have computers, like good computers, and we like lived in flat shares or whatever. So it was much easier to go into the BBC and, and have an office and write on their computers and there'd be people in there writing the Now Show or whatever. Yeah. 
turn its life. And that's exciting. It feels like you're part of it, doesn't it? I mean, I yeah. think people underestimate that sense of just feeling like you're getting somewhere that really does make quite a big difference doesn't it yeah definitely it did but then you we were on a sort of like upward trajectory where i didn't i hadn't researched it i didn't know how it was supposed to go despite everything i've said so far i wasn't some big comedy what's the word geek i didn't know all the shows and all that i didn't really you know you know, I just thought we were on, well, we've got this and then we'll get the next thing and then we'll get the next thing by the time I'm 30. Yeah. There was quite a work ethic, and an Avalon work ethic, I think, wasn't there? But did that, um, was that, that, that at the same time, were you kind of doing this radio show and kind of going out playing colleges uh, 10 nights a week or uh, whatever? Was, it, was there time to kind of really think think forward? It's like I, I work way, way harder now than I did then. And I look back on my didn't think I should have worked so much harder. But, um, yeah, the work ethic and the fact that you had to do an Edinburgh show every year and that but we weren't doing that many gigs. We would do a gig like once a week maybe. And it was more just sort of like, well, we just felt funny. And it was like, oh, we'll just put something together and we'll try this on stage. But it was it was very it wasn't very calculated. And um I don't and I think once we sort of lost that initial excitement and momentum, we had basically we had a development deal with the BBC to try and do a show for BBC three, I think. And I I just I think we just didn't know what we were doing. So what happened to that? Well, I mean, it sounds like it sounds like you, you sort of hardly remember it and it sort of went away and you don't quite remember the point at which it went away. We were given the opportunity to develop a sketch show for BBC Three and then we, and they said, you've got to have some kind of theme because it was this idea that all sketch shows had had a theme then. And, and I think we were losing our momentum as a double act and just didn't have, probably, I certainly didn't have, quite have that, focus or work ethic to know to be able to like just sit down and do nine to five and work out the way it is that we want or what we're doing here mm. so basically that sort of fizzled away and we didn't we didn't have the drive to make it keep going i don't know that's interesting though because i think the work ethic is really important and it sounds like you you know you you had some opportunities and you made made the most of some of them but actually in terms of following it up it wasn't you weren't quite ready for that and we spoke very recently to Danny Peake uh and he won a radio time script writing competition aged 18 right. and nothing happened for 10 years yeah um, and then he won another competition um and then suddenly things started happening and he'd written a lot of sitcoms in between for, for to, to no particular avail so by the time he was around he was sort of when his next opportunity came it felt like he was ready for it um and so there's there's a question of opportunity and being ready, isn't there? Definitely, I think I was very nice. I, I, I was very immature in the sense that I, I I was funny and I was able to like we put together things during the day, went to a pub, did them that night, and people laughed, and that was enough to get us to a certain level. And I thought, oh well, I'm a, I'm one of the funny people, therefore. This is what happens. And then you've got the other people who, like John Finnamore, who would turn up at the gigs 
and he would be writing for his other thing and he was working so hard and and I loved John Finnamore and thought he was great but I also thought well he's one of the geeks do you know what I mean like yeah. who does the the who knows how to do the structure and the formula and all of that yeah but I didn't value that because I thought well I'm one of the people who's just funny and I don't need to do the structure and stuff. Yeah. I'm just being very honest here and like, and really having a dig at myself yeah. from, from that era of just, I think quite, it's not, you have to be a total nerd about it all, but there is some stuff that you have to like, just yeah. learn and yeah. work at. I think that's what we're trying to get at quite often on this podcast is that I think lots of people, think that they just need to sort of write one decent pilot sitcom script and then suddenly everything will open up for them. But of course, if you do write a even passable uh, pilot sitcom script and it goes well, you've got to write five more. And normally they spend two years deciding whether to commission this script of yours. And then they'll say, right, we're going to commission it and we're going to sh- we, we need it for September. So you've now got four months to write five episodes. Yeah, but you've just taken two years and just just get get writing. It's fine, isn't it? It's fine. You can do this. It's fine. And you're like, yeah, of course it's fine. And then, and it, but you got to so you got to be ready when the opportunity comes, don't you? And it so it feels like you had lots of opportunities and you took some of them, but weren't quite ready. So what 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 was the next cha- chapter, as it were? I'm not going to say there are some wilderness years or anything. Uh, well, I've always <laughs> I've always managed to work somehow, but. Um... There probably have been some wilderness years. I did, yeah. So what did I do? I did, uh, I just, just whatever work came. Like I've done, I did some sitcoms. I did star stories. I did like, sorry, I've got no head, which was like. Oh yeah, funny. It was like horrible histories without the awards. And and, uh, (laughs) years later I did Hoff the Record, which was a, I've been, I've been in a lot of under-the-radar things. Yeah. I did Half the Record, which was a sitcom with David Hasselhoff, where I played David Hasselhoff's manager. And it was a semi-improvised sitcom. We did two series of, and it won an international Emmy, but no one watched it because it yeah. sounds rubbish. <laughs> Well, no, I think it sounds intriguing, but it sounds like, is that... I think it sounds amazing. How, how yeah. does that work? Yeah, yeah. But it sounds like a sketch, doesn't it, I guess? It sounds yeah, like yeah. a regular sketch in a, in, a, in, a bigger, in a bigger piece, I guess. And again, that's a very common thing that when we read scripts, we just think, great idea. Uh, this, is, this is a six-minute sketch with a possible series of callbacks, but this isn't this isn't necessarily a sitcom, but I mean, Javel Hasselhoff just transcends all categories, doesn't he? I mean, he just, the laws of physics don't seem to apply to that guy. Yeah. I, I, I mean, he's mad. I didn't, I wasn't involved in the creation of it. I was just cast sure. as a manager, but the way, the way it ended up is it didn't really, I mean, we did have scripts and I don't want to speak bad of the people that wrote them because they are friends, but they didn't, they didn't really pay for the, yeah. scripts there wasn't a lot of work went into the scripts be- partly because and i'll just be honest now like every morning on set we wouldn't really we wouldn't really get to the set until an hour or two after we were supposed to because david hasshoff would be reading the script for the first time right and saying, well i'm not doing that right 
Okay. So, yeah. so then we would like be on set. So all of us together as a cast with the director and David Hasselhoff, like yeah. solving plot problems. Yeah. To make it feel like to make it feel like a proper yeah. sitcom episode where he's the butt of the joke, but he doesn't actually know he's the butt of the joke. Right. <laughs> Meanwhile, the first AD is going out of their minds at the schedule yeah, yeah. and the yeah. director's being ever so patient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's a show, isn't it? I mean, the, the show is the making of that show is sort of when, when you're, you know, that's a really interesting situation. But in a way, I mean, but being in all these different things, I mean, it gives you just loads of experience and insight, doesn't it? And for me, I just think surviving is winning. You know, just surviving in the industry is winning because it's it's really hard to keep going. I think. Yeah, my last um, my last real job was two thousand and five. So every year, every year that that doesn't I don't have that I don't have to do a real job. It's like a main. right. Okay, what was that real job, as it were? Working in a call center. Oh, okay, great. So you've been I've getting never away had with salary. I've never Fergus, had a job where Fergus there. Craig getting away with it since two thousand and five. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I I feel very much the same. I was a big fan of uh, Star Stories. Actually, I think that was a very successful show. It sounds like then, rather than calling them the Wilderness Years, I think it's more almost like it's it's the um, turning it turning it off and turning it on again years. Maybe would you would you say in which. Um, you come back to you come back to things as a solo artist now. So, um, um, what? How, how did? Um, I'm just thinking from from that. How did sort of the uh, Martin Fishback character kind of emerge? That started. Um, I lived in Montreal for a year with my girlfriend and our son, because um, she transferred with work, and I didn't have a lot to do. So, I used that as a year to. Um, and that is the year that basically she supported me while we were there. And the whole plan was we'd just be there a year. But he was going to nursery. So every day I thought, by the end of this year, I'm going to teach myself how to write a plot. Wow. And I don't know if I did learn how to do it that year, but I did a lot of writing. None of it that really went anywhere, but I was just trying to crack some things. And, and then I noticed people doing videos on Twitter. I'd done videos on YouTube a bit before, but I noticed that like, well, people don't really click through to a video on YouTube. No, people don't necessarily click the link. If you put a YouTube video on Twitter, that's an extra click that people need to do. And they might not necessarily bother to watch your YouTube video. And you very depressingly look at it and it's got like 20 views or something. And you think, well, why did I put the effort into that? Mm. But Twitter, you can put a video straight on Twitter as long as it's not longer than two minutes and 20 seconds. It's actually a really good like disciplining amount of, time and I just one day had an idea for a video about a dad sending a message to his son on his first week at university I just had an idea for that and that character just sort of popped out and I did that video and I thought I thought that video I thought I think this is quite funny I'll just put it out and I'll go and get my lunch and come back and if this has got no likes in the next five minutes I will delete that video. Wow. Because it's too embarrassing. Right. To have out there. And then um, Katie Wicks liked it in that first like five minutes. Who I'm sure you know Katie Wicks. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. She's a good friend whose opinion I really value. And she liked it. And I thought, oh, well, if Katie likes it, it must be good. 
it must be all right. So, and then we've just started to grow a bit. And I've got this Twitter account that I did a few years ago, which is a parody account of Actors of Voice called Tips for Actors. And I did a book off the back of that a few years ago. And that had a load of followers, which I've gradually lost over the years, but it had like at the time over 40,000 followers. So wow. I would retweet my yeah. videos onto that account. And that had a few famous followers. And Miranda Hart started retweeting it and saying nice things about this new middle-class dad character I was doing. Right. And it just, but I went into it with no plan. Do you know what I mean? It would just evolve. Miranda's probably related to someone very, very similar to that. Yeah, yeah, I think so. From some of the things you said. So it gradually evolved for who that character was. Like you say, it became, do you know what I mean? I think he wasn't like a fully evolved character right from the beginning. Mm. But it's all there. And I, because I was getting such a positive response, that's very encouraging because it's nice mm. pats on the back. Do you know what I mean? It's nice and yummy yeah. in your tummy. <laughs> so like... The grand get, affirmation um, machine was patting exactly, over your head. Yeah, you get yeah. that immediate response. So, so yeah, it eventually evolved into this. I didn't know his name. Now he's called Martin Fishback. This sort of very familiar archetype but he is also sort of unique, but it's just because it's like my take on that, right? But it's a guy who, when he walks into a, a one sentence description of him would be when he walks into a room, his first thought is how can I prove to the people in this room how smart I am? Yeah, because I, I think I first came across it because I think we're, we're friends on Facebook. I think you also uploaded them to Facebook as well. So I was seeing them there. And just thinking, yeah. you know, this is, and every time a new one comes up, it's just like, oh, lovely. This is going to be, this is going to be great. Um, and then he just sort of kept doing them. And then it's like, so how, how many, how many did you do before, you know, someone just said, hey, can, you should come over here and do that here and we'll pay you money. Yeah, a lot, a lot. But I knew that it was going somewhere and I didn't have much else to do. So I just kept on doing it. Yeah. And then I came up with the idea that he, I had mentioned that he was writing crime. And then one day I just put out an, uh, an extract of a crime novel with the protagonist, Detective Roger LeCarre, who was created by Martin Fishback. This is weird sort of multi-layered world <laughs> that came about by accident. And that really took off. So then, and that's when some sort of telly people started to say hi. Hello there. Hope you're enjoying this episode with Fergus. Plenty more to come about Martin Fishback and how that character ended up on TV and what Fergus learned in the process. Just wanted to butt in with a few bits and pieces that might be of interest if you're one of our many listeners who's trying to write a sitcom script. If that's you, Dave's got a course called Build a Sitcom and it begins on Friday the 6th of May. There are just two slots left on it, so find out more by emailing funnyup02 at gmail.com. Funnyup02 at gmail.com and from the 6th of May for a couple of days you can read Dave's first novel for free as an ebook it's called Stand Up Barry Goldman what have you got to lose literally nothing go and get that on Amazon hopefully there's a link to that in the show notes back to sitcom writing and I'm um, been running some webinars and I've just run one called Kickstarting Your Sitcom 
and getting getting hands-on experience of plotting in a particularly in a writer's room situation as a way of learning how to get your own sitcom off the ground if you sign up you'll get access to a replay of that previous session and some notes to look at ahead of the session so you can pitch a few ideas on a sitcom that i've created for training purposes called big day it's pay what you like and you can sign up for kickstart your sitcom details will appear on my blog sitcomgeek.blogspot.com or follow me on twitter at sitcomgeek or our facebook page or even better and it doesn't involve elon musk or mark zuckerberg sign up to my mailing list called The Situation Room and there should be a link to that in the show notes. Okay, back to Fergus and how Martin Fishback made his way onto the television. So there was a so there's a book and there's a TV series. I mean, which came first and did one depend on the other? How did all that kind of work out? It was already sort of getting developed with some people I'm no longer doing it with before the book. And then weirdly books are quicker than TV. So right. it was the book and books take ages. Book. So that yeah. just says a lot about TV, doesn't it? Yeah. And yet Twitter is instant. Yeah. And there was a five minute window where Martin Fishback could have been choked to death. Um totally, deleted, yeah. cancelled. Yeah. Um but the Eventually, I, I, basically, the BBC commissioned a half-hour script, and I think he was already on board. Basically, my, I'm good friends with Paul Doolan, who I sh- imagine you know. I don't think I've met. Have I met Paul Doolan? Name rings a bell, definitely. Paul Doolan, he writes, he wrote uh, a lot of trolleys. Right. And he writes, uh, he, he writes Half of Bloods, he wrote hospital people he's written oh yes i I saw his name on the uh on the credits for martin yeah Yeah. he's been a lot of stuff he's very he he's a really good friend who's very funny but also has a lot of half hour script Mm. episodes under his belt so i really wanted to get him involved because i knew he would let wouldn't let me cock it up right okay so how was that working together with someone else in that sense i mean how how did that process work well it's helpful that we are really good friends and that he's very level-headed and i had a very clear idea of who the character was so no we we did it over zoom because yeah (laughs) did it through during covid and we basically sat down over zoom and worked out um an outline and then just took it in turns to do drafts and did a lot of yeah. it was an incredibly detailed outline yeah with a lot of jokes already in it and then just went back and forth having goes at drafts and then in the end the bbc only commissioned 15 minutes so we had to redo was that was that a real last minute kick in the kick in the pants or was it just like oh actually this this could work fine or it was this or nothing or how did that come across it was, to me the production company presented it as we're really sorry right they've only commissioned 15 minutes but i was like i couldn't believe because i've never got to that stage right. of my own creation where they're actually going to shoot it mm. so i was very happy that they were commissioning 15 minutes yeah, it's 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 a really well worked uh, worked out character, I think. In fact, all the characters are very very strong uh, in in there, and um, I guess I mean obviously bringing in Paul must have helped a bit. But but 
did you was that was that something that evolved as you were kind of creating the character? Did, did the story, was that just for the TV or was it a kind of slow evolution? Well, no, we had a lot of conversations over, because we were in development for a long time, waiting for various commissions. So, and like I say, we're good friends. So we, every time we went for a pint, we'd be talking about, and the big problem that we always had was who his wife would be, because who would stay with him that long? Yeah. And we didn't want him to just be bullying someone because that's not nice to watch. No. So the the sort of light bulb moment on that was that <laughs> she's, I guess I'll say it. The idea is that you just sort of, it's sort of given to you surreptitiously. Is that it basically is that she's an alcoholic. Yeah. <laughs> so she, it's basically she's always drinking, but not a depressive alcoholic but just that sort of you know in the way that Churchill sort of maintained a steady buzz <laughs> so she's just in yeah. her own world yeah yeah it felt like she was using alcohol as an escape yeah. route but you could you could sympathize and she probably had it vaguely under control um, yeah so the idea is it's not depressing but she is and it's not necessarily as a direct result or solely because of Martin it's just She's never quite there. Mm, yeah. So, <laughs> How, however, <laughs> however, it's a fairly. It's. It, I, I like. I like how sort of fairly early on we we meet this character Martin and, and then we think, oh god, and, and it's funny because uh, the the character the woman uh, playing her um, Samantha Spiro, yeah. fantastic uh, performer. Um, and it's it's obviously it's a very different character, but the the character in in Sex Education um, has a sort of similar monster type sort of husband, but yeah, you know she copes with it in a different way. But it was right. it kind of almost helped me <laughs> give it a shortcut. I've got oh my god, you know, poor Samantha Spiro. Right. She, she's, uh, she's a she's a, she's a terrible judge of character. Up. Oh my <laughs> right. goodness! <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then um, and I also. The other thing is at the moment we're just watching the uh, the Adam K series. This is going to hurt, yeah. which is you know brilliant, but kind of you know very very difficult. And and uh, and uh, Ambika Mod is just you know incredibly that the the, the the sort of it's such a fraught kind of character I and mean, great comedy in there as well. And just to see her just being purely funny, it was just a it was a, such a delight. And 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 the the colours of your uh, pilot compared to watching the you know this is going watching her on this is going to hurt where it's all all hospitals well, it's all gray isn't um, it yeah, overhead yeah, lighting yeah. stuff yeah and, and so it's a it was a kind of it, it's, it, it just felt it just felt so it felt warm and and you know really really uh, had a really warm feeling to it i thought um, Good, I but I did. I, I thought the character work was really strong. Yeah, yeah. There. Well, um, what did you learn in the process of it? Because I say this is like, in one sense, a, a new a new departure for you. What What did you learn? What What will you do differently if you get to do more? I mean, I hope you get to do more. But um, what, what were the lessons learned? Because I think when we spoke the other day to someone about the the difficulties, you, you don't want a pilot. You want six because you want to make six and all that kind of stuff. But actually, a pilot really helps you not make the same mistake uh, six times over. So what, what did you learn about the, the character and the situation as much as, you know, your own writing and how that works? I feel like we learn, I feel like maybe if we do get to write the series, that's where it'll all go wrong. <laughs> but, we, 
we did say to ourselves that it we found it really sort of worryingly easy to write right <laughs> i think because there'd been so much talking about it beforehand and so much groundwork on the character yeah because there was so much stuff there already with him and his very specific worldview that you put him into any situation and i know what his responsibility would be but working with paul like i felt like Paul said, before we worked on this, he pointed out to me something that, this was the big thing that's been most helpful to me personally, and I'm still, I've still got so far to go on learning how to do a plot. Anytime I'm writing something, not just this, I'm always ringing up Paul and saying, is this a story? Huh. So many times I've written things and thought that it's a story, and then the notes I've got, it just, it just doesn't really work as a story. And I... I well, what would you go? What goes wrong? I mean, who, when is a story not a story? I don't, I don't know. I've, yeah, I don't know. Oh, a few years ago, I got sort of mentored by you can't say his name anymore, but the, the, the name that will not be mentioned anymore, Graham Lynn. Okay. <laughs> I, I, Depends um, which bit of Twitter you're talking about, but sure. Yes, yeah, yeah. Not not mentored by, but no. he he liked a thing I did a while ago and a few years ago and. He helped out in the development of that for a while. It never went anywhere. But he would go on and on about Dan Harmon's story circle. If, if I'm aware of it, but I've never really used it. And he would go on about this stuff. And it was so, it just felt so advanced that I just found it really hard to get my head around. But Paul just pointed out something really simple that Trey Parker and Matt Stone say, which is just in every scene, at the end of every scene, the next scene, should be either therefore, yeah. I'm sure you know, I'm sure you know this really yeah. well, but like this happens, therefore this happens, or but this happens, yeah. And it was, and now whenever I put that into action, it's it's so helpful. Yeah, yeah. You need one, and that's a common problem. Is often I wrote a blog post a while back called "When Is a Scene Not a Scene." And quite often a scene is like, this is just people talking and then it ends and then other people are talking somewhere else. And actually your character needs to enter a scene with one desire, plan, because we and we know from the previous scene what it is. And then he's going to leave that scene having failed at that or his plan is moderated in some way. And so he's now going to leave the scene with kind of, so they're kind of, bouncing into in and then straight out again and into the next thing well, even like there's one scene that was in the pilot that we shot but it's because 15 minutes is so little time in the the first edit was like i think 17 minutes or something so there was one scene that was a minute long that was possibly our favorite scene and it was the only scene without me in it <laughs> and it was between um the characters scott Hammer, and um marcus if you've actually seen the pilot, you'll know who I mean. And it was such a funny scene and their performances were so good. But it, it didn't move any plot along anywhere. Yeah. So it was just the easiest to cut. It's just like, well, yeah. it has to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it would have stayed and it would have been funny, but it would have been a luxury scene. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. I think um, occasionally I, I, I wonder if one of your 
things is when you say, is this a story? The answer is, uh, my writing partner, Richard Hurst, who I did Bluestone with and stuff, he's quite hot on this as well. He's very good right. at spotting a dead end from quite a long way away. And right. so, so, so I'll, I'll pitch him 30 stories because I'm just like, what about this? Or we could do this, or we could do this, or how, how about this, or this, or this? And he'll just go, what was the third one? And I'll just go the third, oh, that's, that's the boring one, that's this. This other shiny one's much more interesting. No, 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 that won't work because bum, 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 and therefore this, and therefore this. You can't show that, and therefore it's just going to be annoying. Let's go back to the third one. Right, um, yeah. And sometimes the, you think of a thing, and you go, no, that's not a story. That's an event. And so it sounds exciting, and like you could build a whole story around it, but you just think, yeah, but it's just a thing that's happening, isn't it? What, what's the story of the event? And it's just... It, the, the, the more you dig into it, the more di I, mean, I love how honest you're, you know, you're being about how hard it is, because I don't think when we say it, people believe us how difficult the story of a sitcom is, because without a story, it is just people talking, isn't it? Yeah, that, that was something that Danny uh, Peak talked a lot about as well when he's writing with Lee Mack for, for Not Going Out, was just they spend ages and ages and ages getting the story mm. right. And that's that, that that's that's kind of everything, really. And mm. the, the jokes is all, almost like an a, an add on uh, there. Um, I, I'm I'm interested to know how. I mean, in a sense, as as a writer who performs uh, and and but also playing the character, um, this is this is a kind of relatively new tradition in uh, British comedy. I mean, obviously, Basil Forty was the was the template, and then. And then we had um, David Brent, but now you know subsequent and, and Alan Partridge. But but I, I, I'm I'm interested to know how uh, how how you are able to separate uh, Fergus and Martin uh, in your in your life and in your in in that My world. Um, I'd like to think they are different people. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I've not been confronted with that problem yet because i'm not famous okay <laughs> thing i expect to be but here's the thing is when people talk about martin being a monster obviously i get a lot of feedback on twitter and people who enjoy it but will often say what a horrible person he is i feel quite defensive about him even though i know i'm deliberately touching buttons and saying horrible things but in my head there's a there's a a logic to all of it yeah and maybe i am quite a pedantic person yeah and maybe sometimes i use him as a vehicle to point out well no the people are saying the wrong thing did you yeah <laughs> like, like in one of the original scripts the longest there was i i get infuriated by people saying espresso okay instead of espresso that's the sort of thing that really annoys me. Yeah. And I I will correct, yeah. correct people on that. Yeah. But Martin will, you know, Martin would yeah. would never have a, a any would never refrain from correcting someone yeah. on that. And he might I presume it feels like he might generously see yes, you see lots of people think incorrectly that it's espresso and it isn't, is it? Yeah. You know, yeah, would you explain it? Yeah, would explain what yeah. Exactly what the yeah 
I mean, that's really interesting what you say there, that you you defend your character because you're right. He is a monster, but in his own head, he's the good guy, isn't he? There's nothing he's not. He doesn't think he's a monster. Um, he He's only trying to justify who he is to people. He's insecure for sure. Yeah. Well, here's the, here's the thing. He is not my dad, right? Yeah. And I, mean, I want to underline that <laughs> in bold yeah. type, right? He is not my dad. My dad is a very, very lovely man with no maliciousness whatsoever. But my dad has a character trait that I also have as well. And his dad definitely had is that you, you want to be interesting. Uh... You can't, it can't be seen as not being interesting. Or to just or small talk, just to, just to simply compliment someone is it's just boring. It's just the old, like it's very re- resistant to platitudes. So therefore, you end up saying the wrong yeah. thing because you end up yeah trying to be, trying to avoid being banal is a risk every time you do it, and quite and if, and if your judgment isn't really good, you yeah. you will look just rude. Um, or yeah. overly familiar, or you don't get to say that, man. What's wrong with you? So if he was to meet you, he would say, well, you would say you're a comedy writer, and he'd say, and he would say, well, the, the thing about comedy is, yes, because he, yeah, he wants to help you, yeah, and he wants to and sound it, interesting and knowledgeable about comedy because he read a magazine once that said, yeah, it's all about timing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, my dad said to me once when I first started writing comedy, I told him and I. I don't think he'll listen to this. I think it's okay. But I told him an idea I'd had, and it was probably crap, but it was some joke about, and it's of these characters, these Northern characters set, and they were saying that Jesus was born in Manchester, you know, whatever. And my dad was like, well, that can't be funny because something for something to be funny, it has to be true. I heard that somewhere. And he just thought that that was a literal rule that applied to all... Right comedies i mean like yeah. it, it's not factual yeah 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 actually true therefore it cannot be funny yeah. right the, but the truth is you only need characters who one of whom believes that it could be true that. and that's what yeah exactly yeah 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 no that's interesting but yeah i think but what just perform the character one last thing and then i'll quit it but the other thing i'm interested in is the fact that uh it was so clear when you were writing it what he would do in any situation and what he would not do. And he had an an he's got an answer for everything. And so in one sense, you found the writing very easy and almost like it was cheating. But the thing is, let's let's go back. It isn't cheating because that year in Montreal, you were plotting and plotting and coming up with stuff. There were yeah. 20, 50, 30, 60, 150 characters that never made it, uh, that didn't. That, that didn't write themselves, frankly. And I think occasionally it feels like, um, you know, where's that one character who's going to do this or that? It's like, you've got to flick through an awful lot of stuff. And you, you may literally come up with it straight out of the gate and that's your one thing and that's going to, you know, I'm not saying Al Murray, pub landlord, is, is a one-trick pony by any means, but he, he came up with that character in a bit of a fix to introduce Harry Hill and it's stuck and it's served him extremely well. He's also a very funny man, but. But the thing with Al Murray, didn't I? Yeah. I know Al is that it, it also, that was something that was within him. Yeah. So the pub landlord is someone who 
Like he's obsessed with history, Al Murray. Mm. He he does have that sort of like he he can quite easily pontificate on yeah. the world. Yeah. Do you, know, do you know what I mean? That is that gives him an outlet to Yeah. You know, it's a similar thing. It's an outlet to to do yeah just just to talk nonsense about the world like a pub landlord standing there it's a quiet afternoon you've only got two people and they they can talk and it it doesn't it's just you know yeah no that's true it has to be in you that's it's really good point. It's, it's part of the job really isn't yeah. it as well I it's guess. the character that comes from you yeah. do you know what I mean like anyway yeah sorry that's good uh, have you have you heard any more from uh the BBC yet what's uh, any any more as it stands um it's very positive but nothing's official at all. Right. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But it's it's positive. Okay. Yeah. The BBC do a great... Uh, the BBC are amazing at that. They never quite give you enough. They never give you that one clear moment where you can buy a bottle of champagne yeah. and, and enjoy yourself. There's always a, we're pretty sure that it's slated for then and then it's moved and then suddenly you need to do it and you haven't got time to celebrate. You've got to do it. There's always a reason why it's just never that slam dunk, is it? It certainly won't do any harm, will it, for us to tell people because it's still on iPlayer and uh, we should really urge all our listeners to watch it because it's really and read the funny. Book. Um, but also... Yeah. yeah, yeah, please do. All those clicks, all those extra clicks. Yes, please. Yeah. Uh, is that uh, is the backlog of material? Is that sort of still available? Is that on a is that on a Twitter stream somewhere? Uh, it's all on my Twitter feed, but it's not very well organised. Okay. Some of it's on YouTube. If you type in right, if you go to my YouTube, yeah, profile, it's not very well organised. Yeah. I don't know. Well, the, 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 here's my one last thing though. Uh, sorry, I just keep thinking when you were saying how 15 minutes isn't very long. It isn't. But when you were saying before about making use of that two minutes 20 you've got on Twitter, when it's just yeah. you and a camera, two minutes 20 is actually quite a lot, isn't it? And most and a lot of your videos were coming in under two minutes. Oh, yeah. I mean, most of, I'm very happy if I do one in a minute. Yeah. I'm very happy if I get out in a minute because I don't think people want to watch things for more than a minute. But also really. you get in, you do the joke, you do the thing, you express the idea and then you're done. Um, yeah. And if you just do one thing well... Two and a half minutes is is plenty, but yeah, I love I love how you saw a vehicle, a a a window for this character. And again, we're just thinking of our listeners. You know, new technologies, new platforms, new things come along that you can just suddenly decide. I've got the right character for this medium, um, at the right point in history, as it were, because he feels quite Brexity as well, doesn't he? He's obviously a Brexiteer. Well, yes, but. I, I touched on that in some videos and then I made a decision. I really want to avoid doing that because I could feel people guiding him towards and the audience sort of saying, oh, well, this guy is that archetype, right? He's a Brexiteer, he's a Tory, he's this and he's that. And I thought, well, I don't want anyone... No. Like on one video, I decided deliberately to say that he voted Corbyn for some nefarious yeah, reason. Yeah. I, didn't want any, I didn't want anyone to like know all that. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't want to like assign myself to a tribe yeah. where I'm parodying this very thing. wise. It's very easy to get into that on Twitter. And and there's a lot of things on Twitter that will get a lot of clicks, but then you just like, well, where does this go? Yeah. And I, I really don't want him to become a 
satirical, a directly satirical character where I'm like towing yeah. a particular faction's party line. Yeah, yeah. No, and that dates it as well, um, doesn't it? Yeah. And so actually he, the fact that he transcends that. So you say he feels like a, a voice speaking into that world without being specifically of that world. And because he used to work for Colgate, I, I fully believe that he actually spent some time in Europe and actually says we should stay in Europe. Um, and for a series of really quite troubling reasons, you just think, no, 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 that's a terrible reason. That's not the reason. I, I think he will always play devil's advocate yeah. and he will always, yeah, he might argue that the right thing, but he'll argue it for the wrong reason. Yeah. Or, you know what I mean, there's always, or even just to be interesting, he'll just say, to be interesting. you can imagine him saying, I voted leave. That surprised you, didn't it? You know what I mean? It's like, I voted leave purely so I could tell people I did. Um, so I would be interesting. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's amazing. This this character has just literally gone into my head and you've really created something special. I really, really hope that it's that you get to do lots more. Just just to go back on just to go back on what you were saying there, James, about about the, the technology that's there, which is all, all very true. But it's it, it's it's heartening to know that actually for all, whatever the technology, the fact is this is a character. This is a this is a, a created comic character. You need to do all the things regardless of what the technology is. You need to be sure who your character is. You need that character to be very strong. And, and that's <clears throat> that that is, the for me, the big sort of takeaway from from uh, talking to you about it is that the, the character is at the heart of it and i think it depends where you want to go do you know what I mean i think it's possible now probably to become a millionaire tiktok comedian or whatever yeah. and i don't and the rules those rules don't apply to that right. probably i don't know but i don't know what the rules are yeah. with all the internet stuff but in creating this yeah i did always have an eye on what would this how is how can this be a sitcom character? Do you know? Yeah, yeah. Who? Yeah, and there's a, there's a bit of Mr. Bean in him as well, isn't there? Maybe going back full circle. Um, Hope so. A little yeah. bit. Great, um, great. Thanks very much for joining us, Fergus. Uh, we'll put some links uh, in the show notes to to where you can find out more, and also on iPlayer. Uh, hopefully, Martin Fishback is still lurking around. Um, thanks very much, Fergus. Thank you. Thanks very much, Dave. Thank you. And we'll speak to you next time. Cheerio. Cheers. <laughs>